0: Chapter Eighteen of Abraham Lincoln, A History, Volume Nine. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Abraham Lincoln, A History, Volume Nine, by John Hay and John George Nicolay. Chapter Eighteen Petersburg. During all the summer campaign of General Grant, while he was intent upon breaking and crushing the army of Lee, he never lost sight of the equally important work of breaking his lines of communication and cutting off his supplies. His first attempt in the Shenandoah Valley, having failed by the misadventure of Ziegel at Newmarket on the 15th of May, he asked for the removal of that officer, and Major General Hunter was appointed to supersede him. From Spotsylvania and Jericho Ford, Grant sent orders for Hunter to move up the valley as far as Charlottesville and Lynchburg, if he found it possible, to destroy railroads and canals, and to get back to his original base, or join the Army of the Potomac, as circumstances might decide. Hunter moved away with his usual alacrity, and on the 5th of June struck a force of three brigades under General W. E. Jones at Piedmont, and, after a severe engagement, routed it killing jones and capturing fifteen hundred prisoners and some guns three days later he formed a junction with crook and averil at staunton and moved towards lynchburg while j c vaughan who had succeeded to jones's command fell back on the railroad towards charlottesville General Lee, who was naturally disturbed by this menacing expedition, hurried Breckinridge off with a division to meet it, and on the 13th, early with his corps, was dispatched to the Shenandoah Valley with orders to strike Hunter's force in rear and destroy it, then to move down the valley, cross the Potomac, and threaten Washington. This force moved with great celerity, and part of it reached Lynchburg in advance of Hunter, who arrived before the place on the 16th of June. There was some skirmishing for two days between the opposing forces, but Hunter, owing to the exhaustion of his ammunition, was unable to give battle, and was forced to retire by way of Kanawha over a difficult and arduous route through West Virginia, which movement left the valley open to early in his march northward. But before these movements were developed, General Grant, desiring thoroughly to break the enemy's communication and interrupt his supplies north of the James before crossing that river, ordered general sheridan to march to charlottesville join hunter in the destruction of the virginia central railroad and return with him to the army of the potomac he got off on the morning of the seventh of june and lee as soon as the movement was reported sent after him general wade hampton with two divisions of cavalry his own and fitzhugh lee's they met and a sharp cavalry fight ensued at trevilian station in which hampton was worsted and driven several miles but Sheridan learned from his prisoners that Hunter had moved on Lynchburg, and that a considerable infantry force had passed up the railroad towards Charlottesville, that a junction was therefore impossible, and that he could not effect the object of his expedition in the presence of so large a force of the enemy. There was some sharp fighting on the 12th, and on the night of that day Sheridan withdrew. He reached White House on the 21st, where he supplied his troops, and the next day started with an immense train to join the Army of the Potomac south of the James. Meantime, General Grant had executed the most important of all his turning movements with notable ability and success. His object was now to get south of Richmond and to destroy the lines of supply on that side of the Confederate Army. After the destruction of the Virginia Central Road, the capture of Petersburg would leave but one railroad in their hands, the Richmond and Danville. This would be ultimately severed, and Richmond must fall. He chose as his place of crossing the James a guarded and sheltered spot near Wilcox's landing, far enough from Richmond to give an opportunity for attacking Lee out of his entrenchments if he should attempt to interrupt the passage. All Grant's dispositions for the great movement were skilful and judicious. Warren, with the Fifth Corps preceded by Wilson's cavalry, crossed the Chickahominy before daylight on the 13th, and took positions on roads leading to Richmond, creating the impression in General Lee's mind that an advance upon that city was in progress. The rest of the army was then withdrawn from its works, and moved by long and rapid marches to Wilcox's Landing, where the Battalion of Engineers constructed, between four in the afternoon and midnight, a bridge which was one of the most notable triumphs of military engineering in our times. The river was twenty-one hundred feet wide, 15 fathoms deep in mid-channel, and there was a strong tidal current, with a rise and fall of four feet. One hundred and one pontoons were required. They were anchored to vessels moored above and below. The Fifth Corps and Wilson's cavalry, having accomplished their mission with perfect success, withdrew from their menacing attitude, and the whole army, with its artillery and trains, was south of the James by midnight of the 16th, General Wright covering the movement, and crossing last general lee was still holding his force north of the river to protect richmond from the attack he thought imminent from that quarter the whole movement was so far brilliantly successful grant announced his action to the government at washington the president received the news with joy and gratitude in spite of all assertions to the contrary he had no apprehensions for the safety of washington while lee was kept busy somewhere else he telegraphed to grant on the fifteenth I have just received your dispatch of 1 p.m. yesterday. I begin to see it. You will succeed. God bless you all. The first great object of the movement was the seizure of Petersburg. It was a place of the utmost importance, nothing less than an outlying bastion of Richmond, whose possession by the national troops made the tenure of the rebel capital impossible. An important expedition to effect this momentous capture had been confided to General W. F. Smith, With 16,000 men, he started on the morning of the 15th, under verbal orders from General Butler, to attack Petersburg as soon as possible. The work had been represented to him at Butler's headquarters as very easy. He was told that he could ride over the fortifications on horseback, that from the heights on the Appomattox his sharpshooters could clear out the Confederate garrison, which consisted only of a few militia. On arriving before the place, however, which he did about noon, after sharp skirmishing on the road, he found the works so much stronger than he had been led to expect, and the artillery fire from them so well sustained, that he came to the erroneous conclusion that they must also be fully supported by infantry. He therefore proceeded with the greatest caution and deliberation. Having no engineer on his staff, he thought himself compelled to reconnoiter the enemy's position in person, and not willing to risk an assault in column under such a heavy fire from the guns he concluded to open with his own artillery and then try to carry the works with a strong skirmish line but at this juncture he found his chief of artillery had without authority taken the horses to the rear to water them and an hour of inestimable value was thus lost it was seven o'clock and the sun was setting when his attack was made his skirmishers sprang gallantly forward to their work and captured the entrenchments which were immediately occupied by the lines of battle. A mile and a half of the rebel works, with sixteen guns, were in his hands at nine o'clock. The city of Petersburg, defended only by a force of about twenty-five hundred Confederates, seemed at his mercy. An hour more of daylight would have hastened the capture of Richmond by six months. Even as it was, General Smith was severely blamed by General Grant for not having pushed forward in the darkness and possessed himself of the town but he felt that the risk of a night march forward over unknown obstacles in the presence of an enemy was too great he preferred to hold what he had gained rather than incur the danger of a disaster by groping in the dark about the enemy's inner line of works he had heard that lee was crossing at drury's bluff and he did not know what force might be confronting him he knew that hancock's corps was on its way to support him and when late at night it arrived he asked hancock to relieve his own troops in the captured works and feeling he had done a good day's work waited for morning it was not hancock's fault that he was not on the ground earlier he had been delayed several hours in the morning waiting for rations and at last was compelled to march without them he says he was not informed until between five and six o'clock on the afternoon of the fifteenth that petersburg was to be attacked that day and Meade relieved him of all censure by saying, "...had General Hancock and myself been apprised in time of the contemplated movement against Petersburg and the necessity of his cooperation, he could have been pushed much earlier into the scene of operations." In the night, the golden opportunity passed away. Beauregard had acted with the greatest energy and promptness. He saw, far more plainly than General Lee, the point of danger, he unhesitatingly stripped the Bermuda Hundred lines, and begged for troops to defend Petersburg, while Lee was holding all his forces in hand to fight Grant on the roads to Richmond between the Chickahominy and the Janes. Lee sent him, however, Hoke's division, which arrived during the night, and in the morning Smith and Hancock saw in front of them a new line of entrenchments, manned by veteran Confederate infantry though lee still incredulous so late as ten o'clock on the morning of the sixteenth telegraphed beauregard that he did not know where grant was and could not strip the north bank butler's force at daylight had taken the entrenchments in front of bermuda hundred disgarnished by beauregard and captured much of the small force left to guard them but in the evening of the same day pickett's division crossing from the north side retook the works so that nothing was lost to the confederates by beauregard's bold and judicious action and petersburg was saved to them for on the morning of the sixteenth he had some fourteen thousand effective infantry supporting the powerful artillery of his entrenchments and two days later the bulk of lee's army was there now that the last chance of an easy victory was gone meade acted with all possible energy and spirit Hancock was placed in command of all the troops on the ground, and the Second Corps, supported by portions of the Ninth and Eighteenth to left and right, assaulted the entrenchments, carrying three redans with their connecting lines. At dawn on the Seventeenth, R. B. Potter's division of the Ninth Corps, forming in silence in a deep ravine, obeying a whispered word of command, and without firing a shot, carried another succession of redans and connecting lines with many guns and prisoners. There was heavy fighting all this day, resulting in constant encroachments by the national troops on the Confederate lines, and in the night Beauregard withdrew five hundred or a thousand yards in rear of the line so hotly disputed, and entrenched himself in the new one, with that rapidity and skill which both armies had attained. In the morning he was heavily reinforced by the Army of Northern Virginia, with General Lee in person at its head. Meade, not knowing the full extent of the Confederate reinforcements, and being fully impressed with the immense importance of the capture of Petersburg, ordered another vigorous assault on the Confederate works to take place at noon on the 18th. This was made with the utmost spirit and gallantry. Hancock's corps, under Burney, their old commander having been disabled by the opening of his Gettysburg wounds, the 5th, under the immediate command of Warren, The ninth, under General Park's personal direction, attacked again and again with high but fruitless valour. Barlow, Potter, Wilcox, Griffin, and J. L. Chamberlain did all that could have been asked of them. The works were too powerful to be carried by assault, though ground was gained. The positions carried close to the enemy were everywhere entrenched, and the national lines were established substantially as they remained until the war ended. Grant, at the close of the day, saw that all which was possible had been done, and he commanded that the fighting should cease, that the troops should be put under cover, and take the rest which had become indispensable. In the four days' struggle, about ten thousand men had been lost on the Union side. There is no official statement of the Confederate losses. They were, of course, less, as they fought behind entrenchments, but were still not inconsiderable. The Army of the Potomac was exhausted by its incessant and protracted exertions its long and arduous marches, its daily assaults upon an entrenched enemy, defended by entanglements in front and guarded by powerful artillery, its heavy losses in brave and experienced officers and veteran soldiers, unrelieved by any decided success, had begun to have their effects not only on the strength but on the spirit of even that brave and patient army. It was time to put them also behind entrenchments, to give them some rest and protection." General Grant determined to invest Petersburg by a line of entrenchments, which might be held by a part of his troops, leaving the rest free for whatever movements might be required. General Butler, with the army of the James, was assigned to the care of Bermuda Hundred and Deep Bottom, on either side of the river, the two positions being connected by a pontoon bridge. About Petersburg the Army of the Potomac was disposed in this order, from right to left. Burnside with the Ninth Corps, Warren with the Fifth, Burney with the second, Wright with the sixth, the last corps holding the extreme left and being refused to the west and south. Grant's first attempt at seizing the Weldon and Southside railroads was unsuccessful. The second and sixth corps were moved to the left with that purpose on the 22nd of June, but not being well closed up, A.P. Hill's corps was thrust between them, and inflicted considerable damage, taking a large number of prisoners and some guns a little ground was however gained and held and the armies remained quiescent for several weeks the union army being busily engaged in entrenching and fortifying their lines the position on the jerusalem plank road midway between the norfolk and weldon roads was made impregnable by two strong redoubts by the middle of july the cavalry in both armies was kept busy in constant raids while sheridan was away on his raid to trevillians wilson was sent with two divisions to destroy if possible all three of the railroads connecting richmond with the south he started on the twenty second of june breaking the weldon road at reams's station destroying thirty miles of the lynchburg road and as much of the danville road where the two lines crossed at burksville junction he did not effect this without some keen fighting with the confederate cavalry and when, the object of his expedition being accomplished, he started to return, a heavy concentration of the enemy's cavalry was effected against him. A severe engagement took place at Stony Creek on the Weldon Road, with indecisive results, and at Reams's station Wilson found himself confronted by a strong force of Confederate infantry and artillery which he was unable to dislodge. He was here compelled to retire and make the best of his way back to Petersburg with a heavy loss in guns and wagons. His loss in killed and wounded was only 240, but 1,261 were reported missing. Brilliant as these cavalry raids were, General Grant, in his memoirs, intimates that they cost more than they were worth. Both sides were very expert in repairing railroads after they seemed utterly destroyed. The Confederates, especially, were disheartened at the facility with which Sherman would run his trains a few hours after they had raided his tracks, so that it came to be a saying among them that sherman carried duplicate tunnels in his baggage at this point general humphreys in his admirable history of this campaign pauses to estimate the losses in the union army from the crossing of the rapidan to the first of july the army of the potomac lost and killed and wounded about fifty thousand and including the missing sixty one thousand four hundred the army of the james about seven thousand A large number of regiments were mustered out. Great numbers of sick were sent home. The constant policy of the Confederate authorities was to conceal their losses. There are, even at this day, no trustworthy estimates of them. The steadfast heart of the President sickened at the slaughter. In a dispatch to Sherman on the 16th of July, Grant announced his attention to, quote, make a desperate effort to get a position here which will hold the enemy without the necessity of so many men, end quote. The President, referring to this, telegraphed to Grant in these words, Pressed as we are by lapse of time, I am glad to hear you say this, and yet I do hope you may find a way that the effort shall not be desperate in the sense of great loss of life. The dull, dry midsummer passed away with little accomplished by the army of the Potomac. No rain fell for forty-six days together. The troops suffered greatly from thirst. The dust lay thick on the roads and the barren fields the slightest movement of troops filled the air with suffocating clouds. There was no water in the springs or the ponds. The soldiers, everywhere, were forced to dig wells for themselves. But even amid these hardships they throve, and soon recovered their spirits. General Lee, foreseeing the inevitable end if the siege of Petersburg was to endure indefinitely, and yet unwilling to risk a conflict in the open field, was anxious for Grant to attack him in his works. The hope that threatening Washington with a strong detachment might induce Grant to do this was one of the motives which led Lee to send early down the valley in the latter part of June. On the 20th he wrote to Jefferson Davis, I still think it is our policy to draw the attention of the enemy to his own territory. It may force Grant to attack me or to weaken his force. The movement was made, with the results which are more particularly mentioned in another place. Neither the administration at Washington, nor General Grant, were especially disturbed. The Sixth Corps was sent north to meet early and drive him south, and General Lee, reporting the movement of troops on the river, expresses his, quote, fear that they are on the way to Washington, end quote, and his deep disappointment at such action, it is so repugnant to Grant's principles and practice to send troops from him that I had hoped before resorting to it he would have preferred attacking me, end quote. Four days later, he again wrote to Mr. Davis. His dissatisfaction with Grant's conduct is confirmed. I had hoped that General Grant, rather than weaken his army, would have attempted to drive us from our position. I fear I shall not be able to attack him to advantage. The menace upon Washington failed of its purpose. The siege of Petersburg continued without relaxation. The siege train was on the ground in the latter days of June. On the 9th of July, Meade issued orders regulating the approaches of the Army of the Potomac in front of Burnside's and Warren's Corps. Days and nights were filled with the clamor of guns and the labors of the spade. The most noteworthy incident of the summer, though it led to no significant result, was that of the mine in front of Burnside. Near the end of June, Lieutenant Colonel Henry Pleasants of the 48th Pennsylvania, a regiment composed chiefly of coal miners proposed to run a mine under that portion of the confederate works called elliot's salient the only advantage of the position was that the entrance to the gallery was in a sheltered ravine which was concealed from the view of the enemy and even this advantage proved illusory as beauregard soon became aware of the work which was going on and promptly threw up entrenchments at the gorge of the salient and planted batteries to give him a front and flank fire on the point of assault the work was completed towards the end of july it was a vast gallery five hundred and eleven feet long with lateral branches of thirty-eight feet each eight magazines were charged each with one thousand pounds of powder While the excavation was going on, Burnside had been drilling Edward Ferrero's Coloured Division to make the charge when the mine should be exploded, but this arrangement being reported to General Meade on the 26th of July, and by him referred to General Grant, it did not meet their approval. This division, having never been in action, General Meade was not sure of its steadiness in case of disaster coming to it he would naturally apprehend severe criticism from republican sources on the charge that he was sacrificing the colored troops burnside seeing his judgment overruled in this respect then took the deplorable resolution of leaving the decision between his three white divisions to lot and an evil chance passing by the able and energetic commanders potter and ob wilcox selected general j h ledley for a work to which he was totally inadequate On the night of the 26th of July, General Grant sent the Second Corps with a heavy force of cavalry to the north side of the James River, to join with Butler's forces in an attack upon the enemy's positions on that side. His object was twofold, first to cut, if possible, the railroads between Richmond and the Anna River, and disturb the enemy's operations in the Shenandoah, and second, to cause the withdrawal of a large body of troops from Petersburg at the time of the explosion of the mine. The first purpose failed entirely. Though a large body of the Confederates was moved north of the river, it availed Grant nothing in the end. Some ground, it is true, was gained on the 27th, but the enemy reinforced so heavily on the 28th that no advantage resulted to the Union troops from the fighting on that day, and Grant at once resolved to withdraw the Second Corps to the lines of Petersburg to support the meditated assault. This was effected on the nights of the 28th and 29th. On the morning of the 30th, the mine was exploded at a quarter before five o'clock. The whole salient rose in the air, a vast mass of earth, and as the smoke and dust cleared away, a crater two hundred feet long, fifty feet wide, and twenty-five feet deep, was disclosed where the rebel fort had been. Colonel Pleasance stood on the Union breastworks and watched the effect. His task, at least, had been well done the enemy were for the moment stupefied by the catastrophe they ran in horror from the crater on both sides the breach was virtually four hundred yards in extent now was the moment for burnside to pour his men through the gap and gain the crest of cemetery hill which commanded the town of petersburg but the advance was languid general ledley was suffering from sickness he spent the morning in a bomb-proof burnside had neglected to level his parapets and remove the abatis in his front and his leading division made their way slowly out of the works by the flank instead of an extended front they pushed on however to the crater and crowding into that narrow hole stayed there and no efforts could induce them to leave it in the course of half an hour the enemy recovered from their surprise and began a furious fire from front and both flanks potter's division was sent in on the right wilcox on the left Each of them made some progress, but the frightful chaos and confusion of the center division in the crater continued, and neither of them could hold what they had gained, and when at last Ferrero's colored division was sent forward, without their commander, who considered it his duty to remain in the rear, they rushed to the front with great spirit, but under conditions which made disaster certain." being badly led they poured over the edge of the crater in great numbers and although they did their best to get through to the other side they emerged with their formation shattered advancing towards the enemy they encountered a heavy fire of infantry and cavalry and were soon stampeded and driven back in great confusion general john w turner had by this time managed to get a division of ord's corps forward through the disorder and charged with one brigade upon the enemy's works to the right of the crater taking possession of about one hundred yards of their line. He was just giving the order to another brigade to go forward, when the retrograde rush of the stampeded troops swept his whole command backward to the Union lines. Warren, on the left, saw no opportunity to advance. The enemy in his front kept their works strongly manned, and the confusion in and about the crater was such that the troops already there were more than could be handled, and any addition to their numbers would only have increased the disaster. Grant saw early in the day that the affair was not prospering. He rode forward as far as he could go on horseback, and then went through to the front on foot. He soon convinced himself that the evil was beyond remedy. The impulse of the assault was gone. The enemy had recovered from the shock of the surprise, and were sweeping the edges of the crater in its approaches with a hot and destructive fire. The Confederate infantry now advanced and assaulted the position, and although some good fighting was still done by Potter's command and part of Ord's, the huddled mass in the intense heat was unable to move, recover its formation or its spirit. At half-past nine, Meade in a dispatch to Burnside assumed that his attack had resulted in a repulse, and ordered, if in his judgment nothing further could be effected, that he withdraw to his own lines, taking every precaution to get the men back safely. Burnside, on receiving this order, hurried to Meade's headquarters to protest against it. He thought he had not fought long enough, that there was still hope of carrying the crest, but Meade repeated the order in a peremptory manner, leaving, however, the time and manner of retiring to Burnside's discretion, and Burnside sent it to the crater at noon the lamentable inefficiency which had marked every operation of the day still continued and even the orders to retire were so languidly executed that a heavy loss in prisoners occurred at the crater and between the lines this unhappy day closed burnside's military career meade whose stern and fiery temper often got control of him on the battlefield had sent some stinging dispatches in the course of the fight, to which Burnside had returned a resentful and contumacious reply, and, after his troops had been driven from the crater, he preserved a sullen silence, making no reply to Meade's anxious and angry questions. It was possibly this insubordinate attitude, as much as the failure of the attack, that induced Meade to prefer charges against Burnside. Grant also was eager for some process of censure, two days after the fight he wrote to meade speaking of the miserable failure of saturday i think there will have to be an investigation of the matter so fair an opportunity will probably never occur again for carrying fortifications preparations were good orders ample and everything so far as i could see subsequent to the explosion of the mine shows that almost without loss the crest beyond the mine could have been carried this would have given us petersburg with all its artillery and a large part of the garrison burnside was relieved from command a few days after this battle a court of inquiry ordered by the president at the request of general meade over which general hancock presided censured general burnside for the neglect of such preparations as would have ensured success generals ledley and ferrero and Colonel Z.R. Bliss for inefficiency and positive misbehavior in action, and General Wilcock for lack of energy in pushing his division forward towards the crest. The court also, by implication, blamed Grant and Meade for not having put all the troops intended to cooperate under one command. Meade preferred charges against Burnside, which were never acted upon. The Committee on the Conduct of the War investigated the same matter and came to a far different conclusion. The political orthodoxy of Burnside outweighed in their minds the purely military judgment of Grant and Meade. The change made by these generals in the plan of attack, substituting white for colored soldiers, was decided to be the first and great cause of disaster. Their report justified Burnside in every particular, and censured Meade for everything that went wrong. But it was too late to restore Burnside to command. The war was ending by the time the committee reported and his resignation, tendered on the very day of Lincoln's assassination, was accepted by President Johnson among his first official acts. Burnside returned to civil life, and entered at once upon a career of unbroken and eminent popularity and success. After this disastrous failure, the engineers, under General Grant's orders, went on perfecting the redoubts and the lines connecting them, so that at the proper time the works might be held by a small force, and the rest of the army be free to move upon the enemy's communications. But the summer wore away without the accomplishment of this purpose, though several more or less serious attempts in that direction were made. During the summer and autumn the attention of both Grant and Lee was constantly diverted to the operations in the Shenandoah, to the neglect of important movements about Petersburg. Sheridan was assigned to that field of duty in which he was to win imperishable laurels, Two divisions of cavalry under Wilson and Torbert were given him, and Lee sent one of his best divisions under Kershaw to reinforce early. Grant himself made two visits to that part of his command, one early in August, at the time he placed Sheridan in command, and one in September, when he gave him the order to begin his glorious campaign in the valley, which resulted in the victory of Winchester. The army of the Potomac during this period was by no means idle, Besides their engineering work, several partial movements to the right and left were made, with the result of extending the Union lines, and forcing the Confederates to give a corresponding extension to theirs, the effect of which was in all cases to weaken the inferior force. But even in these movements, Grant's mind was occupied rather with Sheridan and Early than with Lee near the middle of august grant was led to believe that lee had made a detachment of three divisions of infantry and some cavalry from his army to reinforce early and he at once resolved to make a heavy demonstration north of the james to prevent the dispatch of any further forces to the valley and if possible to draw back those already sent hancock who had resumed his command of the second corps and burney with a part of the tenth crossed the river, and marched on the 14th, along the three principal roads between the Chickahominy and the James, in the direction of Richmond. But they met the enemy everywhere, in full force, under Field, Wilcox, and Mahone, and gained no special advantage, except in learning that no such force as Grant had apprehended had gone to early, and detaining a large body of troops in that neighborhood." hancock was kept however for several days north of the james maintaining a menacing attitude and skirmishing constantly but forbidden to attack the confederate works as an assault under existing circumstances offered no probable chance of success while this energetic demonstration was going on general warren was withdrawn from the lines before petersburg the ninth corps being stretched over the space vacated by the fifth and ordered to seize the weldon road at the globe tavern a point about four miles due south from Petersburg, and destroy it from that point as far south as possible. In this movement also, Grant's constant preoccupation in regard to Sheridan is seen, quote, I want, he said, to make such demonstrations as will force Lee to withdraw a portion of his troops from the valley, so that Sheridan can strike a blow against the balance, end quote. He was under some temptation to go in person with a large detachment to Sheridan's assistance, but wisely concluded to stay where he was. This determination the President heartily approved and applauded. On the 17th he sent to Grant this terse and vehement dispatch, which indicates, in a singular manner, the close moral sympathy between the two men. I have seen your dispatch expressing your unwillingness to break your hold where you are. Neither am I willing. Hold on with a bulldog grip, and chew and choke as much as possible. A. Lincoln, President. Warren moved out at dawn on the 18th, seized the Weldon Road at the place directed, and immediately began the work of destruction. A force sent by Beauregard under General Heath attacked him about two o'clock, and a sharp action ensued, resulting in the loss of about a thousand men on each side, the Unionists finally holding the field the next day both sides having been strongly reinforced an impetuous attack by the confederates now under the command of a p hill produced for a time some confusion on the right of warren's force but warren speedily reformed his troops and drove the confederates back to their entrenchments on the twentieth warren feeling sure that lee would not willingly acquiesce in the loss of the weldon road and that he would have to fight further to retain the advantage he had gained Took up a stronger position a mile in rear and awaited the attack of the enemy. This came on the 21st. Hill opened with a severe artillery fire and assaulting at two o'clock with great energy. He was, however, completely repulsed, leaving his dead and wounded and several hundred prisoners in Warren's hands. No further attempt was made on his position. The Weldon Road, thus boldly clutched and bravely held, remained in the hands of the Union army till the war ended. The mere possession of a point on the road was not all that General Grant desired. By destroying the road to Rowanty Creek, some thirteen miles beyond Warren's left, he could force the Confederates to haul their supplies a distance of thirty miles. General Hancock, with two divisions of infantry and Gregg's cavalry, was sent to accomplish this work, and did it so expeditiously that by the night of the twenty fourth, the destruction of the road was complete to a crossroad three miles south of Reams's Station leaving only five miles of the work undone. But General Lee could not afford to allow this work of destruction to go on undisturbed, and therefore sent AP Hill with a large force of infantry, cavalry, and artillery to prevent it. He attacked Hancock on the twenty fifth, and in spite of admirable conduct of the Union general and his subordinates, Miles and Gibbon, they were driven from their position with considerable loss night coming on hill made no effort to pursue his advantage and both parties returned to their respective entrenchments near petersburg in this battle as in nearly every engagement since cold harbor there was apparent a certain loss of morale in the army in the operations of the week before north of the james the utmost efforts of such intrepid soldiers as barlow and gibbon could not get the requisite work out of their troops and in this affair the splendid personal conduct of hancock and miles was not enough to inspire their commands the causes of this laxity were not difficult to discover the weather was hot and enervating the constant marching and lack of repose had wearied the soldiers They were composed in great numbers of raw recruits not inured to such warfare, and worse than all, the terrible loss in competent and experienced officers, which had been suffered on the dozen sanguinary fields of May, June, and July, had for the moment rendered the army of the Potomac no longer the elastic and perfect-tempered weapon it had been in other days, and which it became once more after a few months of discipline and drill. After Sheridan's victory in the Shenandoah, and his hot pursuit of early, the President was anxious lest Lee should detach a large force to reinforce early, and Grant, to prevent this and hold Lee in position, made another movement against the Confederate lines north of the James. He sent Ord and Burney, with the 18th and 10th Army Corps, on the 28th of September to threaten Richmond from that direction, and to take advantage of any favorable opening they might be able to find or make in the enemy's lines. By daylight the next day the whole force was over the river and moving swiftly upon the confederate skirmishers at first all went prosperously with ord's column george j stannard's division captured fort harrison an important confederate work with sixteen guns and some prisoners and after a gallant fight in which general hiram burnham was killed but in the attempt to push his success by capturing a redan by the riverside general ord was severely wounded and his troops under General C. A. Heckman met with a serious repulse in the effort to carry Fort Gilmer by storm. Burney, on the right, carried the skirmish line on the Newmarket Road, and then, at the order of General Grant, who had arrived at Fort Harrison, assaulted Fort Gilmer with Adelbert Ames's division and William Burney's brigade of colored troops. The attack was made with the greatest energy, The colored soldiers rushing to the ditch with splendid gallantry, and climbing to the parapet on each other's shoulders, only to be killed when they reached it. General Ewell commanded the Confederate troops under the eye of Lee, who was present on the field. Though all the efforts to take Fort Gilmer proved fruitless, the national troops established themselves firmly in the captured Fort Harrison, and with astonishing celerity converted it under the enemy's fire into an enclosed work. A heavy force was concentrated by Lee to retake it, and on the afternoon of the 30th, General Anderson, commanding Longstreet's corps, assaulted the work, supported by a heavy fire of Confederate artillery. Stannard, in the fort, reserved his musketry until the rebel columns emerged from the underbrush, and then delivered a deadly volley which swept them from the ground. Three times the attack was made, and is often repulsed, but the resolute Stannard lost his arm in the second assault the losses in the two days were about even, some 2,000 on the Confederate side, and 2,272 among the Union troops. The fort was never retaken. During these operations, General Meade was directed to make such demonstrations to his left as should prevent any considerable force from being sent to the other side of the river, and on the 30th a strong reconnaissance was made under command of Warren, which captured the Confederate entrenchments at the junction of the Squirrel Level and Poplar Spring roads. Pushing on from that position in the direction of Boydton Plank Road and the South Side Railroad, the national troops under Park and Potter met with a severe repulse from a force commanded by Heath and C.M. Wilcox, which General A.P. Hill, who had succeeded Beauregard in command at Petersburg, had thrown out to meet them the next day however general park advanced again with sharp skirmishing and established a line about a mile from the enemy's which was at once firmly connected with the works on the weldon road and was not thereafter disturbed the principal event of october was the campaign of early against sheridan which ended in the crushing defeat of the confederates at cedar creek grant's anxiety about the valley prevented any important operations during the early part of this month The Confederates, under C.W. Field and Hoke, made a violent assault upon Cotts on the 6th of October, driving him from his position on the Derby Road and capturing his guns, but venturing to attack the entrenched infantry lines, they were severely repulsed. A week later, General Butler, in his turn, assaulted the Confederate works on the north of the James, and was defeated with considerable loss. On the 27th, the Army of the Potomac made one last effort to get possession of the South Side Railroad. A sufficient force was left in the redoubts to hold them. All the available infantry, amounting to some 35,000, with a due proportion of artillery and about 3,000 horse, under Gregg, on the 27th moved to the left under the command of Hancock and Warren. The morning was dark and rainy. There were unavoidable delays at the start. The movement was not a surprise, and the enemy was encountered everywhere in force. The different commands met with some partial success during the morning, and at two o'clock the leading corps was still six miles from the railroad. The movement had failed, and Grant ordered the troops back to their lines. But they were not even to accomplish this order without serious disturbance. The roads were difficult, the topography unknown to the national commanders, There was a considerable gap between the forces of Hancock and those of Warren, and through this, late in the afternoon, the Confederates under William Mahone rushed and made a vigorous attack on Hancock's right and rear. Hancock pulled his force together with wonderful readiness and address, and, assisted by T. W. Egan, Gershon Mott, and Gregg, turned upon Mahone and drove him from the field. By this time it was dark, and the next day the troops were withdrawn to their lines." This action is called the Battle of Hatcher's Run. In support of this movement, General Butler made a demonstration on the same day on the north side of the James, which was unsuccessful. His forces under Weitzel were met by the local defenses under Longstreet, who had recovered from his wounds and had been assigned to command a week before, and were roughly handled. The Union loss was over a thousand men, that of the Confederates much less. This ended the active operations of the year, so far as concerned any grand movement by the Army of the Potomac. They were still employed in defending and strengthening their lines, and in occasional demonstrations against the enemy's communications, so that by the seventh of February, eighteen sixty five, the Union lines reached to Hatcher's Run, and the Weldon Road was destroyed to Hicks's Ford. But the hard fighting ended with the close of October. The troops had reached a dangerous condition of weariness. The frightful losses in competent officers and veteran soldiers could not be compensated by any number of raw recruits. Warren said that at the time of the affair at Hatcher's Run, thirty nine hundred thirteen of his men had never fired a musket, and that sixteen hundred forty nine of them were ignorant of the manual. Hancock gives the same significant testimony. General Park, in his report of the movement of September 30th, says, quote, "...the large amount of raw material in the ranks has diminished greatly the efficiency of the Corps." End quote. The composition of the army was so changed by the inferior material obtained by drafting, and the heavy bounties, that a rigid system of instruction and discipline was necessary to make the new men homogeneous. It was no longer the old historic army of the Potomac. But the work of the winter." Wrought a rapid transformation, and when, in the early spring, the order forward was given, the troops sprang to the summons and finished the war. End of Chapter 18. Recording by Owen Cook in Potawatomi Seated Land.